today on Pop Talk. In 2017, it was the very first time that people were more likely to die from opioid overdose than from motor vehicle collisions. Pop Talk is a fact and science-based podcast dealing with important health topics. Our focus is to educate, entertain, and inform you on a variety of health issues. And now your host, Dr. Shane Fernando, Dr. Amy Raines Melenkoff, Prachi Thopper, and Sukanya Roy. Welcome back to Pop Talk. This episode marks a return after the holiday hiatus, and we look forward to bringing you great new episodes on a variety of complex and sometimes controversial topics. As usual, I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Amy Raines Milenkov and fourth-year medical students Prachi Thopper and Sakanya Roy. Hello, this is Amy Raines Milenkov, and I'm happy to be back with you all today, and I'm excited about our topic. Hi everyone, it's Sukanya. Um, I'm a fourth year, like Dr. Fernando mentioned, and I'm really excited to be back and continue our conversation. Hi everyone, my name is Prachi, also a fourth year medical student here at TCOM at UNT, and just so excited to be back and actually get this going again. Okay, so today's topic, we're gonna to talk about the opioid epidemic and how it's had an impact on the US population with experts. And today we would like to welcome our two special guests for this episode, Dr. Scott Walters and Dr. Anisha White. If both of you could just give us a, please, a brief introduction to your work and responsibilities, that would be wonderful. Well, I'll go first. Um, my name is Scott Walters. I'm a professor in the School of Public Health at the Health Science Center. And uh, my work historically is on uh, developing brief interventions for substance use and related behaviors. And more recently, I've become involved in a large study. I'm actually the steering committee chair for a study called the Healing Community Study. This is a large implementation science study in 67 communities where we're testing out a uh, impl implementation of evidence-based strategies to reduce the opioid crisis. And hello, I'm Anisha White, and I serve as the Associate Dean for Assessment and Associate Professor at the UNT Health Science Center College of Pharmacy. My research background is in health outcomes research, and I've conducted several research studies related to opioid use and pain management. The goal of our research is really to educate healthcare professionals. We really like to improve prescribing and counseling on opioids towards better patient outcomes. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we look forward to having a pretty good conversation about this topic. It seems like a lot of people might have heard about the opioid epidemic um, through the news or just heard the term being thrown around. Could someone, uh, either of you, give us a little bit more information on what opioids are and what what makes them so dangerous? Sure, Anisha, you want to take this? Oh, sure. Um, well, opioids are really substances that when you take them into the body, they seek out and reach those opioid receptors. And um, some people like to think of them as having a similar effect to morphine. Um, now, most people know them as narcotics that might be prescribed to treat severe pain or persistent pain. Uh, for example, chronic headaches, backaches, maybe you've taken them after surgery or uh, you're experiencing cancer-related pain. Uh, but we want patients to definitely be careful, as we'll talk about in just a little bit, uh, because they do have the potential for addiction if taken long-term. So they're and, uh, strong painkillers. 
Yes, in a sense, um, in a sense, um, there are good reasons to take opioids, right? If you if you're going to take them short term, uh, if you uh, need palliative care, then um, opioids may work best for you. If you're just going to take them for a couple of days after a major surgery, or perhaps you've been in an accident, then an opioid may actually help you to relieve that pain. But taking them long term uh, at very high doses is really not recommended. And Shane, it's important to recognize that opioids have been around for a long, long time, um, really for thousands of years, um, starting in the, in the form of, of uh, just straight opium to morphine and then synthesized into codeine and all kinds of you know, medical products that we use. Um, heroin uh, more recently has been the most commonly abused or I, I guess the, the most common illicit opioid but more recently, um, I, just, I imagine we'll get into um, most of the deaths now have been attributed to the new synthetics like fentanyl. I'm wondering how, if they've served a useful purpose and they do, how did this um, epidemic start in the 1990s? Or in, do you even think that the term epidemic is warranted? Well, I, uh, so for me, I, I certainly think the term epidemic is warranted just in terms of the scope and the number of deaths and people that have died. That We talk about an epidemic or a crisis, but it's really at three or four crises because it's yeah, the, the, um, the commonality is you're talking about opioids, but it's taken a different form. Um, so for instance, uh, you know, Anisha can probably comment on the rise in or the change in prescribing practices in the 1990s that led to a rise in long acting opioids and, and prescribing those for more chronic conditions. And then when those prescribing practices start to, started to kind of flatten out in the kind of the early 2000s, you saw a rise in heroin where people would switch to that. You saw a change in supply chains so instead of having heroin coming from Asia, now you're having it coming from Mexico in a kind of a different distribution model. And then when the balloon was squeezed there, you started to have a rise in the synthetics like fentanyl, um, starting in sort of two, 2011, 2012, something like that. And so you can count one, two, three waves right there. And more recently, they're now talking about a fourth wave that's more of the um, psychostimulants that are taken in combination with some of these new opioids. And I would agree, Scott, and uh, definitely that the term epidemic uh, is warranted in these situations with the number of deaths beginning to really uh, soar. As you mentioned, until around 2011, uh, most of the opioid overdose deaths really were related more to prescription opioids. But as we've seen over the years, um, overdose deaths uh, resulting from heroin use have really be, been on the rise. And so in thinking about what may have caused that, there are various um, reasons that have been discussed and debated. Uh, some have mentioned that uh, around the 19, I guess mid 1990s, people were switching from prescription opioids to heroin because it was a little bit easier to obtain. Um, that's still debatable, but uh, definitely uh, a reason that we may want to explore a little bit further. The other thing we've seen, as you've mentioned, is an increase in use of fentanyl, which as you all may know is a very potent 
uh, opioid that has been rapidly sweeping across the United States and resulting in many deaths. Even if you think back to early 2000s, a lot of the medical examiners didn't even test uh, for fentanyl uh, presence. And so in thinking about how things have changed tremendously up until this date, uh, now that's definitely added to uh, the list of, of potential reasons for death among these patients. And so fentanyl is something we need to look out for now. Uh, we continue to monitor opioid use and heroin use, uh, but we definitely need to talk about some solutions towards these problems as we're noticing uh, an increase in deaths. And, you know, we'll, so I'm sure we'll break this out in just a minute, but before, you know, we leave this at just the, appreciating the magnitude of deaths that have resulted from these waves. In 2017, it was the very first time that people were more likely to die from opioid overdose than from motor vehicle collisions. And that was a combination of the, of the rise in overdose rates, as well as the fall in motor vehicle accidents. But uh, the odds of dying was about one in 96 um, from opioid overdose in 2017. You Now, that, that was sort of the peak at the time, and you saw a little bit of a, maybe a flattening off or a decrease of just a percent or two. Um, but the more recent data during COVID has shown that year-over-year -year changes, it's much higher. 2020 was the highest um, overdose ever. Um, so it's really a shame that the progress we have made, a lot of it seems to be unwound by, uh, by the COVID pandemic. That is actually quite shocking to hear that it has affected more people than are being affected with car accidents. Um, what kind of populations do you feel like are most affected by this crisis? Well, I mean, I can comment um, that uh, populations that are more likely to use drugs, um, certainly, so young adult males, and populations that are less likely to have good, uh, good health care. Uh, so you have people that are unemployed, people with have low, you know, low income, people that live in, uh, in neighborhoods that are, uh, uh, that, that are low resourced. It's, I mean, I, I also add, so we, we talked about a, you know, a crisis that maybe has three different waves there, but you could also look just at, at a point in time that it's not that these necessarily switched. So it was all pills and then it was all, you know, it was all heroin, it was all pills and then it was all fentanyl. Um, but you actually have three crises that are sort of unfolding at the same time. They, uh, in 2019, they reanalyzed um, deaths by drug classes. And um, what they found was that there's sort of three crises that are unfolding at the same time where you have a, a kind of a pill death crisis and the pill crisis seems to follow a kind of deaths of despair narrative where you have places that have um, you know, less education, um, uh, more unemployment, uh, places that are more rural. Uh, pill deaths seem to follow geographic boundaries, so state boundaries, for instance. On the other hand, if you look at heroin deaths, those seem to be more clustered around traffic corridors. So you see this long line of deaths that goes from uh, like El Paso up to Denver, and you see another cluster of deaths that's sort of the St. Louis uh, to, uh, to Chicago kind of uh, 
And then, and then you have these places that are kind of in the, what we call the Rust Belt, I guess, or the Northeast that are more a kind of syndemics where it's just a mishmash of lots of different kinds of deaths. People using uh, heroin at the same times or using pills at the same times or using fentanyl. So, um, oh, by the way, a, a kind of a rule of thumb is um, in, um, uh, in the US, the rule of thumb is you have around 15 per 100,000 uh, is, is the average rate of, of deaths per year, 15 per 100,000 um, die of overdose. And in Texas, we have a substantially lower rate than that, 500,000. So, you know, that's to our credit, I guess. And I would agree, um, you all mentioned earlier a little bit about COVID or the pandemic, and we've definitely seen an increase uh, in concerns for those with mental illness or substance use disorder uh, across the country. And so definitely keeping an eye on uh, how people are reacting to the pandemic and um, providing support for them to uh, adequately manage their mental health, I think will be important going forward in thinking about this surge in um, overdoses and, and deaths. So I, I think you've both brought up great points about how much it's been affecting uh, our population today. And we always see news about, you know, the opioid epidemic within, you know, everyday health articles. I see it on NPR. Uh, and most recently in the news, it was reported, you know, that a consulting company, McKinsey, who advised a lot of big pharma companies settled for about like $573 million due to its role in the opioid crisis. And there's been a lot of other legal claims against a lot of other large corporations, and those are still taking place. So what role do you think big pharma companies and other large corporations have played in this epidemic? Mm -hmm. Yep. Anisha, I would love to hear your take on this. <laughs> it's a fascinating story. And believe me, everybody was in on the, uh, everybody was in on the job. Yes, I agree, Scott. Uh, definitely pharmaceutical companies have played a role in uh, this epidemic and uh, were promoting the safe use of these drugs in patients that uh, were not always appropriate in, in terms of uh, prescribing. And they are now settling those cases if you've been following the, some of the legal news there. Um, but I will say, too, that the pharmaceutical companies are not the only players here. Uh, there are many people who participate in the process of obtaining and, and using prescription drugs long, uh, long term uh, from the prescribers who uh, may be inappropriately prescribing these drugs long term. You know, I worked with a workers' compensation company at one point. And um, they were trying to uh, move forward some initiatives to mitigate abuse. Uh, of course, the pharmacies have become involved too as the uh, prescriptions have increased. You do need a pharmacist to be able to dispense that prescription. And so your common uh, community pharmacies have also been rolling out some initiatives to try to prevent uh, the misuse of these drugs. So I think it's gonna really take an effort 
from everyone, including the patients and families. You know, we'll talk about in a little bit some of the proposed solutions, but decreasing the stigma, helping people to really understand the potential for addiction of these drugs. If you are, for example, playing sports and you become injured, uh, oftentimes you're not counseled on the potential for addiction of these medications. And so raising that awareness, I think will be key, but over time, yes, we have, we, we can definitely trace the steps in, in looking back to where this originated um, uh, from the misinformation that was shared on the safety of these drugs. And even when you look in the literature, when you look in the evidence-based literature, uh, you do not see widely published studies on long-term use. These drugs are not recommended for long-term use at high doses. And so I, I think that story was miscommunicated uh, quite a bit, but uh, I'm glad that we are uh, addressing it now. There's a wonderful book called Dreamland by Sam Cornones, and uh, he describes the you know sort of the waves of the national opioid crisis, and he points out that this you know this problem we're currently experiencing it all happened with pills. It started with pills, okay? Because heroin deaths had gone down for years. And pills weren't a problem, you know, until the 1990s. And so he describes what he calls a tripartite system of um, one, aggressive marketing of this of a new class of so-called non-addictive uh, non opioids by pharmaceutical firms, two, overprescribing by unknowing or unethical physicians, and three, lax oversight by government officials, especially Medicaid and professional licensing. Um, so it, I'll give you an example. It resulted in a situation where communities, um, uh, so I'll talk about Scioto County, um, Ohio. And for a time, they had the, uh, uh, the highest rate of uh, opioid-related deaths in the country. And so what residents noticed in, in Portsmouth in Scioto County is in the 1990s, uh, a handful of out-of-town doctors quietly moved in and they started to set up pain clinics that attracted a line of people waiting for the prescription. And so people would drive hours to see a doctor for a few minutes and walk away with a 40 or 80 milligram Oxycontin prescription. So the residents of the town wonder, well, whose problem is this? And what would you even do about it <laughs> if you did? You know, this is a legal substance. It's regulated by the government. It's prescribed by a doctor. Um, and many of the people that visited were out of towners from nearby Kentucky and, and West Virginia. So they leave their money in their town and, you know, and, and they take their pills away. So it's a situation where nobody, um, especially in these so-called soft targets, um, these smaller towns that weren't, I mean, these are not, for the most part, inner, you know, these are not big towns, the little, you know, little towns. Um, so anyway, it, was, it just resulted in a very interesting situation in the 1990s. And they had a whole group of people who grew up on pills, you know, um, just grew up on pills, young people. It definitely sounds like a large portion of healthcare workers uh, definitely have at least a part in contributing to the opioid epidemic. And I guess my question is, how is this crisis affecting the current and future scope of healthcare? And how should we as future providers prepare ourselves um, when we do come across patients who might be more prone to being addicted to opioids? Mm -hmm. I think you bring up a good. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point there. 
um, in thinking about what prescribers can do and even looking at, at other countries. You know, if you compare the United States to other countries, even Europe, uh, many other countries, our prescribing rate for oxycodone, for other opioids is, is much higher uh, than these uh, other developed nations. And so obviously we're doing something different here, right? Uh, if you go back to our education and training in medical schools, pharmacy schools, nursing schools, et cetera, we do see clear differences in how we approach pain management in the therapies that we choose in our evaluation of the evidence for effectiveness because uh, some would debate that there is not a wide body of literature there that supports this overprescribing of opioids. And so the why do we continue to prescribe at these high rates? That question is, is there, right? And so I think that's where we can start. Uh, and that's just one solution is to uh, reevaluate some of the uh, information that we share in, in the education process uh, for uh, medical schools, pharmacy schools, nursing schools, et cetera and um, also to promote appropriate counseling for patients. Uh, many of the, the research projects that we've worked on uh, reveal that we're not using things like motivational interviewing or, or um, appropriate educational materials for patients when we talk to them about opioid use. And so I think there's definitely room for improvement there and um, those are areas where we can target uh, some of our efforts in the future. And we, I mean, in fairness, I think we've come a long way, uh, certainly in terms of prescribing. Um, we, you know, in Texas, for instance, we have a, you know, a dr prescription drug monitoring program. Um, physicians are required to check a state database to make sure that patients aren't, um, you know, pill shopping in different places. Uh, we have a standing order for, uh, for naloxone. And so um, this is a life-saving medication. It can reverse the effects of an overdose and anybody can walk in in Texas and get it at a pharmacy with a, you know, with just a normal copay. Um, so there, uh, we do require, um, uh, actually for, for a time, it was just, uh, I'm sure Anisha knows about this. Um, so they had a, uh, it was what's called an X waiver. So in, in order to prescribe um, buprenorphine or medications for opioid use disorder, um, there was special training that physicians had to have, and it was much more regulated. Um, but more recently, that was rolled back. And now uh, any, most uh, uh, physicians can prescribe um, buprenorphine and other medications for opioid use disorder without the special waiver. And Scott, I would agree that the initiatives are widespread. I think they're wonderful, but we have to use them, right? Mm -hmm. Only about 50%, I think it's 50 or 55% of doctors actually use the PDMP, the Prescription yeah. Drug Monitoring Program. So uh, similar numbers for pharmacists. So we have these tools, these amazing tools to monitor, to look at trends, to see the red flags, to understand when patients are doctor shopping for opioids, but we have to use those tools and educate ourselves on how to read those trends. What do the numbers mean? So I think there's definitely um, room for improvement there, but it's great to see that more of these tools are being offered uh, during these recent times. There's a lot that we could do. Um, you know, we could encourage educational initiatives. 
Um, we could require CME. Uh, we could, uh, you know, think of veterinarians' offices too. Um, you have a lot of diversion from pills that are prescribed for animals. You know, they get diverted to humans as well. Uh, and a lot of, um, you could think even in terms of, which are usually not that controversial at all, drug take back programs, uh, safe disposal programs, you know, the majority of people who end up in heroin started on pills and the majority of people that are diverting pills, they're not their pills, you know, they're someone else's pills. And so um, if you're getting prescribed, you know, a month or two months worth of pills and you use just a few days and then that bottle sits in your, in your cabinet and a curious teenager, you know, comes by and so anyway, encouraging people to, if you're done with the medication, take it and dispose of that medication. It's a simple thing to do. With all these new initiatives and interventions, I, I can see where things are getting better. But one of the things that seems to me that makes this so much more difficult is the role of stigma. A recent essay in JAMA uh, said, described that, uh, like this, the understanding of opiate use disorder as a medical illness is still overshadowed by its misconception as a moral weakness or a willful choice. So I'm wondering how have you seen stigma play a part and how are we really confronting and how we're confronting the, the epidemic? Yes, I, you know, I see that a lot, um, that stigma is a barrier to getting help. Uh, it's also a barrier to accepting um, a, a medication for opioid use disorder. And so users are seen, you know, unlike other medical conditions and, and even unlike mental health conditions, users uh, are, well, even I'm using the term user. What other field <laughs> calls its clients users? I mean, they're just computers and, you know, uh, and it, in the addictions field, that's the only field that use the word user to describe people who are, you know, involved in that system. Anyway, um, but people who, uh, who, who use drugs are often described in very moralistic terms. It just doesn't happen for you know, diabetes or depression or schizophrenia or any of those, uh, you know, medical or, or mental health condition. And then also, you know, the stigma around taking a medication that might help them to quit using opioids. Um, medications are seen as, well, you're just substituting, you know, one drug for another, or, you know, the only way to do it is just to quit cold turkey and to go without. And we know the people who, who take a course of medication for opioid use disorder, like buprenorphine, um, do much better uh, in, the, in the long run, so. That stigma just getting in the way of evidence-based interventions. Um, so what, what can we do to counteract the stigma or what is being done? And I agree that stigma is an issue um, that may sometimes uh, discourage people from coming forward or asking for help or maybe families discussing the issue. Uh, but I do feel like individuals and organizations are trying to create more initiatives to take action. Uh, you've probably seen some of the increased media promotions to decrease some of the stigma uh, and then just um, educating ourselves. I think really does help, as I mentioned before, healthcare professionals educating themselves, but also communities, patients and families getting more involved um, to help patients to overcome that potential guilt or shame that they may feel uh, associated with their use, uh, that it's, it's not their fault and helping them to be comfortable with sharing their stories. 
uh, I think will definitely help. Yeah, I think it's the, I mean, like you were saying, it, it's a lot of just normalizing this. Uh, I'm looking at one of our ads right now for the healing community study. And we, in these communities that are receiving the, uh, the intervention, we have a series of communication campaigns that sort of attempt to normalize this by showing somebody who is a, you know, a person that is an, an aunt, a waitress, an artist, but she also takes methadone. And that's not an, you know, that's not an unusual thing. She looks like a normal person and, you know, she's somebody in recovery. Um, so that's a way to kind of normalize the, um, the, you know, the picture to the communities. You can also normalize it to systems that might encourage people to seek help. So if you, you know, if you think of uh, marketing to employers, for instance, that if you have somebody who's had a drug problem and is now taking, uh, you know, medication assisted therapy or, or medication for opioid use disorder, that's going to result in lower healthcare costs and better work productivity. Um, you could have a conversation with the with a judge, a drug court judge, uh, and make it, you know, point out that if people are on maintained on a medication for opioid use disorder, they're less likely to relapse, they're more likely to have employment, to have good family lives, and so forth. But I mean, making a case, I think, uh, both normalizing it to a community as well as making a case to the particular system that you're hoping to influence. It's one of the things I've noticed that this is really a, if you talk about stigma, it's really a slog because everybody, talk about um, criminal justice, you know, you go court to court and the one court does not care one bit what the other court does. <laughs> so every court could treat a person differently. And, you know, one court says you have to quit and, you know, we're going to drug test you every week and we're not allowing any medication. And, you know, that's not an evidence-based practice, but they can, you know, drug courts can, can totally do that. And I think as a student, you kind of touched upon this, Dr. Walters, but uh, as a student on a micro level, I've come to realize how important language is, for example, using the term person with opioid use disorder rather than abuser, uh, as it helps maintain a more of a neutral tone and separates the patient from their disorder and not become defined by it. And I think that's something that I've come to kind of learn of how to be cognizant of that through my medical rotations here in medical school. It's kind of a funny history of this, you know, for, for years prior to buprenorphine, um, it was pretty much methadone, you know, was the thing. And there were so many regulations on methadone. It had to be at a special clinic. You know, there was a particular, there was all these zoning laws. People had to go to the clinic every day and get their methadone. And it got such a, um, you know, such a sort of stigma, I guess, or stench to it. Um, but I'm wondering whether, so buprenorphine is now something that, you know, can doctors prescribe it, patients take it home like any other medication. And I'm wondering whether, I, I'm curious whether Anisha has a, a, a thought on if with the, with the X waiver um, being changed and a person can get buprenorphine from just their normal family physician, it, who, it, assuming the physician will prescribe it, is comfortable with it whether that will further uh, reduce the barriers and make this seem like a more typical or normal health condition? Yes, I think that will be helpful, uh, Scott. As you know, um, uh, methadone, um, as it's been used over time and administered under the supervision in many clinics, uh, it was helpful, but a lot of patients 
couldn't get access to it. The access was the biggest issue uh, for that medication-assisted treatment. So buprenorphine should be more widely available. Uh, patients can visit their uh, private practice physician and obtain it, and they can use their insurance even, um, commercial insurance or Medicaid, um, or even if patients don't have insurance, they can still obtain buprenorphine. I think the biggest um, area for assistance there from our end is helping them to get access uh, to these treatment places. So we had some research that we were conducting late last year that focused on buprenorphine access in Texas actually, and um, really calling around to some of the providers to ask them how easy was the access, uh, what's the process like when a patient does want to get help? Do they just call? Do they just make an appointment? Um, do you have limits or restrictions or eligibility requirements? And so those kinds of things, I think are, are good questions for providers to be thinking about uh, in terms of how to assist uh, these patients. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't also say that naloxone is, is a big part of this. Um, so this is a, you know, again, people can get it in Texas with a standing order. You can go into a pharmacy and get it, but it's something that you can keep in, especially if you have, if you work with uh, populations that are at high risk, you work with, you know, with young people. Uh, I know a lot of, you know, heck, the UNT Denton up the street, UT Arlington, um, they, uh, a lot of hall directors have packets of naloxone just in case. I have it here and just in my closet, just and it's a, uh, it's a nasal spray now. And um, if someone is overdosing, then you can give a shot, uh, up, you know, up, up the nose. And um, so that could revive a per, you still got to call 911, but um, that has a potential to, if the goal is to predict deaths, that has a great potential to, um, to, to divert that. And yes, Scott, I completely agree. For those that aren't aware of naloxone, um, some people call it a lifesaver. I mean, if a patient is experiencing an overdose with heroin or other prescription opioid pain medications, they can very quickly restore that respiration with that naloxone nasal spray. It's fairly uh, straightforward in terms of administration and um, it's used by a lot of paramedics uh, in the ER rooms and, and just regular individuals who would like to uh, help uh, people who are in those situations. So. Um, I definitely think that Narcan or uh, Naloxone is, will be a big help as we move forward. Some of our community health workers, I know there are some pharmacists who are listening to this. Uh, some of our community health workers were uh, lamenting that one, that pharma pharmacies didn't stock it because it comes in a big box. It's just, it comes in a two pack, like a blister pack, but it also comes in a fairly large box. It takes up a lot of shelf space. And then even when they're able to get it, the box is really a, um, it, it's a disincentive to carry it around because who, you know, who wants to carry around a little box? So what they do is they take the, the, the blister packs out um, and then they punch a hole in just the sort of the edge of the foil and the community health workers just carry it around their necks on the lanyard, um, which I thought was a fascinating little adaptation. Yeah. Yes. You know what? You know, even locally, you know, our UNT Health Science Center had an initiative uh, mm -hmm. last year uh, with regard to naloxone, where I believe it was about 9,000 doses uh, mm -hmm. were distributed. And so 
if you can't get it at your local pharmacy, there are other places that you can obtain um, the Lopsone and also obtain the training. It wasn't too long ago that I uh, encountered a couple of individuals in the parking lot of Home Depot, and I had um, Narcan with me. And I thought that this was going to be a situation that I had been trained for, and unfortunately, um, it wasn't. But when I explained and asked and told them, you know, can I help? Is there something I can assist with? And told them what I had. One of the, the uh, men asked, well, can I have yours because I'm out of it? And it just mm. really, uh, can't, you know, drove home the point that you never know who you're, where you are or who you're going to encounter. And so it seems that, you know, getting more of that out into the community is, is really a, a good intervention strategy. And so I'll give you a website and you can get free naloxone if you go to morenarcanplease.com. Morenarcan, N-A-R-C-A-N, please.com. And this is a SAMHSA grant out of UT San Antonio and they will ship you free naloxone, anybody, or free, free Narcan. Um, the box, they'll ship it to you um, for free. So all you have to go is just put your name in there and they'll send it to you. Good, We're, that's one of our questions that I wanted to ask about was uh, community resources. But before we skip to that one, I wanted to ask about first, we've talked about some of you know, the interventions and some, some uh, things that are going on that's really normalizing the stigma, which I love the approach that you are taking with that. Um, not normalizing the stigma, sorry, I think that's what I said, that's not what I meant, um, but normalizing um, the situation so that people cannot feel so alone and isolated and that they're the only ones um, suffering with these disorders. But I'm also wondering what, are, what type of other kinds of community barriers have prevented solutions or awareness of the issue? Is there anything that's kind of working against the work that you are doing? I don't know. I, think, I, don't, I don't know if we can think of anything there. Most most people are trying to support and promote. Well, yes, yeah, so I'll add, you know, I'm in a school of public health, so I think big picture, you know, big tent. And so the the things I think of are people can't find employment, they can't find housing. Um, you know, so it's the, the things that might disrupt their normal stability um, that lead to, you know, just exacerbate this cycle. Uh, certainly, well, I mean, we haven't talked about the role of, of the criminal justice system too, in the jails. Um, you know, so the jails serves pretty much the de facto treatment for the, the, that's the modal treatment for drug users, you know, is people get put in jail and they end up detoxing. Um, so it's really the, the jails have a tremendous opportunity to get people started on medication-assisted treatment and as well as to give them naloxone upon discharge. There's a tremendous opportunity there because after, so if you can imagine a person who's arrested, not even convicted, you know, arrested and just waiting for the trial because, you know, they can't afford bail. And so they're waiting, you know, 60 or 90 days in the, in the county jail. And so they're uh, they're essentially detoxing, you know, and their tolerance is going down. If they come out and they resume using, even at the same level that they used before, the same exact thing, um, it's possible they may overdose because their tolerance has been reduced. So there's an opportunity, I think, in, in the jails and ditto with the uh, emergency departments 
um, you know, the emergency departments are really remiss if they, if you get a person, and also the, the EMS, I think, you have a real opportunity if you have somebody who has a demonstrated overdose and, you know, connect that person with medication-assisted treatment and to, uh, to get them hooked up with naloxone. That is actually such a great idea to start implementing um, medication-assisted treatment in both jails and the ER. I think that's very... Um, unique. And I think that would definitely make a big difference in the future if that was happening more often. Um, just for the sake of uh, definition, just in case our listeners don't know what the, tre- uh, the term medication assistant treatment is, could you explain what that is exactly and what other harm reduction strategies are being put into place to combat this epidemic? Well, medication assisted treatment is I mean, it has referred to medication like buprenorphine and methadone, I guess, um, naloxone. Um, uh, but uh, the more recent term is uh, medication for opioid use disorder. And I think that there's a subtle distinction between if you're saying medication-assisted treatment, it sort of sounds like the medication is not the treatment, it's assisting the treatment. And so the slightly newer term that I said is medication for opioid use disorder. And I'm sorry, what was the second, <laughs> second part of the Got question? Got it, thank you. Yeah, um, I was just asking, uh, what other harm reduction strategies are being put into place to combat the epidemic? Oh, well, um, so, I mean, there's a range of things. Um, we talked about um, take back programs, which are usually not controversial at all. So that's, that's a kind of harm reduction strategy, but it's a very low bar. You know, a little higher than that would be something like naloxone or Narcan. Um, that's also a harm reduction strategy. Um, a little bit higher than that would be things like a needle exchange or a safe, uh, safe use environment where people can use and you know have people around them. Um, so there's you know there's a range of uh, of um, harm reduction strategies, but each community has got to decide where their you know kind of their level of tolerance for those things. And I agree. I would add the uh, prescription drug monitoring program uh, as a data system to identify those trends and patterns uh, associated with uh, addiction and and use of opioids. Uh, We're definitely hoping to improve the reporting and the use of the prescription drug monitoring program. The other thing that I've seen uh, quite a bit of interest in is the promotion of non-opioid or or, um, non-pharmacological management of pain. And so when we think about if if a patient does present with uh, pain symptoms, are there any non-opioid therapies that we can recommend to those patients? So learning a little bit more about alternative treatments, I think um, will be helpful in the future. Yes, that's a good point. And don't forget uh, co-prescribing. So if you're prescribing, you know, a certain dose of an opioid or a combination of an opioid and a benzodiazepine, for instance, um, you might also co-prescribe naloxone with that so that, you know, so the person has it. Yeah, and to your point, Scott, there's been an initiative to actually remove those ultra high dosage uh, opioids from the market. And so, um, for example, formulations that are greater than 90 morphine uh, milligram equivalents per day when taken as directed can really be dangerous. 
And so if we take those uh, or reduce access to those extremely high dosages, then we may also be able to see some benefits uh, for patients. And the prescribing windows have changed. Isn't there a default in Texas now to what a three day or five day or something? Yeah. Above that you have to, okay. Was it the case, I imagine it was a case years ago that, that um, prescribers could prescribe, you know, a month, two months, three months, and there wasn't any prohibitions against that. Was that right. true? Right, in the past, it was very common uh, for uh, those high dosages and, and long-term uh, prescription use, which we don't want to see. And so I'm glad to see that there are additional restrictions being put into place now. And not only is that just too long for the vast majority of, uh, you know, of health conditions, but it also results in a lot of extra pills for people that they just didn't need. And then, you know, like I said before, it ends up in their medicine cabinet and then it gets diverted by, you know, a friend's friend who comes over and, you know, sees and takes a few and then. It does. And to your point, um, the take back programs that are, are being emphasized are very helpful in those cases. Many patients do have extra opioids in their medicine cabinets. And so finding out or seeking places where you can get rid of those extra medications because they shouldn't be storing those at home uh, is helpful. And uh, we know that we have one on campus, but we also have various sites around the state and in other states. And Anisha, do you know anything about the dissolvable um, packets? Didn't, we, didn't the Health Science Center do something with that? Where you just, so you get a little envelope it has a kind of gel in there, stick your pills in there, and it sort of dissolves the pills and you can just throw it in the trash. Yes, and Deterra is the most widely used dissolvable packet or one of the most widely used right now. We actually have a current research study where we're looking at mailing those out to um, healthcare professionals and patients to increase the use of those um, dissolvable uh, packages. It makes it quite convenient for patients to dispose safely uh, of those uh, opioids. So I think both of you mentioned wonderful initiatives that providers can take to kind of counteract this epidemic, as well as some resources like the website you mentioned, Dr. Walters, or the Take Back program you mentioned, Dr. White. So are there any other local resources available for community members who are looking for more information about what opioids are or assistance with opioid use and disorders in general? There are uh, the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, has quite a few uh, educational materials on their website. Um, SAMHSA, or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, also has pamphlets, educational materials, community resources. Of course, the CDC, uh, and the um, Department of Health and Human Services websites are great uh, sources for uh, handouts or educational materials too. I would mention Challenge of Tarrant County. Um, they have a nice website and do a lot of work in the intersection between uh, addiction and mental health. Um, Recovery Resource Council um, also does good work. And uh, you know, we have a pretty good MHMR as well. been a really fascinating conversation today and I'm encouraged actually by all the the different resources and 
improvements that we've seen over the past years to counteract this epidemic. And it's great to hear from experts here from our own university um, that are working quite, quite a lot from <laughs> on these issues. Um, I'd like to ask our panel, um, Drs. White and Walters, if you could kind of, what is your takeaway? What do you want our audience that's maybe listening to this conversation to take away from what we've, what we've shared and what you've shared today? Well, what I would mention is that, you know, sometimes I think about the fact that more than 130 people uh, die after overdosing on opioids every single day. That's a lot of people. I mean, if you think about uh, the number of people to fill a one flight, uh, that would be imagining that plane crashing every single day. And so when we think about who can help, it's everybody, right? It's not just the pharmacist or the physician or uh, a pharmaceutical company that has a new message. It's everybody. Everybody can play a role in this and take some type of action uh, to end this opioid overdose epidemic. And so reach out if you know someone that has a problem, talk to people, talk to family, friends, healthcare professionals, try to be supportive uh, as much as you can. Um, recognize that this is a substance use disorder. And so uh, we want to really offer help to individuals and then I think show as much support as you can and then also I would just say acknowledge and celebrate people who are, are moving through this process and encourage them. Yeah and I would uh, I was gonna say what you know the second part of what you said is it may seem like this is this problem is if you're an individual listening, it may seem like this problem is just as big as the ocean, you know, like what, you know, what in the world, but there are things that you can do, you know, you can, um, you can advocate for people in recovery, you can change your language, you can carry naloxone. Um, if you are, uh, you can look through your medicine cabinet this weekend and throw out extra things that you don't need anymore in your medicine cabinet, um, be it, you know, being a good citizen. Um, you can, um, uh, you know, the next time you, you yourself or you have a loved one who has an injury, um, you can ask questions about the pills the doctor's prescribing and, you know, do you really need 10 days, you know, or maybe five will do. And then, you know, if you're done with your pills, get rid of them. Um, so there are a lot of things that individuals can do um, to be good citizens in the, in the fight. Well, thank you, Dr. Walters and Dr. White for joining us on our episode today. It was a truly enlightening dis discussion and I've learned a lot myself. And if you, the listeners, are enjoying our episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on any of the major streaming platforms. If you'd like to reach out and share your thoughts with us, you can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poptalkunthsc or Instagram at poptalkunthsc. We would love to hear from you. Thank you all so much for joining us. We appreciate you for tuning in. Please look out for our next episode, which will be coming very soon. Our next series will be based on the COVID vaccine. The first episode being a discussion of the vaccine itself, breaking any myths or misconceptions about the vaccine. And the second episode in that series will be a series of um, 
personal anecdotes and descriptions of um, experiences with receiving the vaccine. So we hope that you join us and we hope that you pop by. Thank you for listening and until next time. Pop Talk is a production of the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and is produced at the UNT Health Science Center in Fort Worth. To learn more, please visit our website at unthsc.edu.